This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. More than a decade ago, Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger kicked off California's climate crusade. Schwarzenegger, in 2005, came out and said, science is settled, we know what's happening, we have a good idea what we need to do about it. Despite pushback from the new administration, Governor Jerry Brown has continued to lead the charge and to set an example for the nation. California's legislators, business leaders, and environmentalists have kept climate change on the front burner. But not everyone is happy with Brown's methods, such as the cap-and-trade allowance. It's allowing refineries and power plants to continue to pollute and not just emit atmospheric pollution, but emit local pollution that enters into bodies um, and causes respiratory as well as other sort of public health issues. The pros and cons of California's climate crusade, up next on Climate One. Is California's climate crusade leaving its poorest communities behind? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. As the Trump administration doubles down on fossil fuels, California continues to push ahead on clean energy, and the rest of the nation, red and blue states alike, is jumping on board. Wind and solar energy are becoming big business in Iowa, Texas, and Nevada. Many states are considering going to 50 or even 100% renewable power. In California, Democrats and Republicans have joined forces with big oil and environmental justice groups and agreed on expanding the state's climate action plan. On today's show, we'll talk about that plan, how it came about, where it's headed, and whether it's working for all of our communities. Greg's guests are David Baker, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, Mike Milkey, Senior Vice President with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and Perrin Shaw, Senior Strategist with the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. Here's Greg Dalton. Welcome. David Baker, let's begin in 2006. George Bush is in the White House. Arnold Schwarzenegger is governor of California. The economy is booming. Al Gore's uh, Inconvenient Truth uh, is just about is, is out. And the IPCC UN group of scientists are about to come out with their report. Uh, and California signs what some people would say is the first and most important piece of climate legislation. Take, pick up the story there. Sure. I'd actually go back a year before that to 2005. We, you know, think back to that decade. There was growing public concern internationally about climate change and what to do about it. And Schwarzenegger, who was always very conscious that he was a Republican governor in a Democratic state, in 2005 came out and said, science is settled. We know what's happening. We have a good idea what we need to do about it. So I'm going to put out an executive order, and we are going to cut our emissions back to 1990 levels by the year 2020. It was just an executive order, and that means any governor governor who comes into office afterwards can use it or toss it in the trash heap without a single problem. So Fran Pavley, legislator here in California from the L.A. suburbs, decided that was not going to be good enough, and she put forward a bill with Schwarzenegger to enshrine that goal into law, and that's what we had in 2006. For Schwarzenegger, it was a really good, shrewd move. He was still eyeing where he was going to go nationally if he had another job past governorship of California, and he was up for re-election. 
He needed some big, bold issue that he could appeal to Democrats and independents with, and he made this his cause. He got it through the legislature with only one Republican vote in favor of it, and yet he was reading the polls pretty astutely because if you go back and look at public opinion polls in California at the time, that law actually had almost identical support among Republicans, Democrats, and independents. The parties weren't quite aligned that way, but among the voters in California, they all pretty strongly backed that law. And so you had, from the very beginning, California's primary climate law always had that kind of bipartisan and compromising uh, origin story to it. It was always something that was put together by Republicans and Democrats, even though in the legislature it didn't quite pan out that way. Uh, but that formed the basis for pretty much everything that came next. And 2008, there was a recession. There were, then there was uh, some concern, whoa, we can't afford to fight climate. There's a recession. People concerned about the jobs. What came out of that? Well, a couple of contradictory things came out of that. Um, California, by that point, had become the headquarters of the clean tech industry in the United States, companies focusing on solar, wind, electric cars, that kind of thing. And we were starting to get some jobs out of that. So there was a bit of momentum in that direction. At the same time, you had industries that were never happy about the original climate change law and were really unhappy about this idea of cap and trade that was coming out of it, who thought, okay, this recession is our opportunity. And so in 2010, they put together a ballot initiative to try to hit the pause button on this law and suspend it until the economy improved. And it turned into a fairly expensive political fight, but that proposition went down in flames. It was pretty handily rejected by voters uh, who basically viewed it as sort of an attack on a California law primarily by the oil industry. And ever since then, it's, that, that was, I'd say, the beginning of the process of the industry adapting to this law um, once they they lost that ballot initiative. Yeah, it was validated at the it was, uh, ballot box. And then 2010, Jerry Brown comes into office, and he's initially quite suspicious of cap-and-trade. Because remember, after the Great Recession, there was a lot of suspicion about Wall Street, cap-and-trade, people worrying that it could be gamed and scammed, that this was, and we might get into this later, that uh, people could game this, trading of a gas that you can't see, smell, touch, or taste. That sounds like a Wall Street dream. We... <laughs> There were a lot of people who were thinking that way in 2010, um, including the people who were putting together the cap-and-trade system. We'll get into this a bit more later, but there are different ways that you can use market mechanisms to try to control greenhouse gases. The two that you hear most often are just putting a tax on them or cap-and-trade, which is a pretty complicated market. And the people at the state, the California Air Resources Board, who were in charge of putting together this cap-and-trade system were terrified by the ghosts of the electricity crisis. They'd all lived through it, and they spent a lot of time consulting with people here in uh, Berkeley, Stanford, um, some people who were out of, coming out of the industry, looking for all kinds of ways that people could game this system and then trying to build in l rules that would protect against it. Um, the result is this system's been up and running for several years now and appears to be moving pretty smoothly, and nobody has ever caught anyone trying to manipulate it in any particular way. 
The downside is this thing is frigging complicated. Um, it's really difficult to learn all of the rules and understand how every last mechanism works. So that was the trade-off. So Mike Milky, we have this law, signed by a Republican governor, been through a recession, validated at the battle box. Uh, George Shultz, Republican statesman, rode to its rescue in 2010 when it was challenged by oil companies, comes to extend it. Why did Silicon Valley companies get behind supporting this climate law? We supported the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, our 375 members in high tech. We supported um, what was then uh, Assemblymember Pavley's bill, AB 32, the California Global Warming Solutions Act, uh, because we saw it as an opportunity to, one, address an issue, a problem, a real problem. We're a valley of scientists and engineers. So uh, we not only um, respect science, <laughs> believe in science, but we also see um, as entrepreneurs opportunity where a lot of other folks don't. Um, and we also supported cap and trade, which uh, was part of uh, what came out of uh, the 2006 package because we believe it is the most efficient and cost-effective way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we thought it was also a good opportunity to speed the transition to the clean energy economy. Prinshaw, the head of your organization, uh, when this deal was passed, she said that this deal was California Governor Jerry Brown playing Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, all in one for big oil. So, pretty colorful quote. Um, explain why you opposed, your group opposed this uh, climate deal. Sure. Mia has a way with words. Uh, <laughs> and thank you for having me here as well. You know, I want to actually step back from the sort of support oppose for just a moment and talk about how California and most places actually end up reducing carbon emission. And that's through rules. So, the state of California meets our obligation from that climate law from 2006, from the Pavley law, 80% of it is met through the rules that the state of California has promulgated. 80%. Cap and trade is a bit of a circus sideshow. You know, it, it catches a lot of attention. It's kind of interesting. It's where the money is. But really, the hard work of addressing climate change and improving our air quality happens through the rules that ARB passes, that, I'm sorry, the Air Resources Board uh, for the state of California and local air districts pass. So I mean, some of that is the um, advancement of renewable energy. We've got a 50% goal. We're working at getting to 100%. You know, and environmental justice groups are very supportive of that. Um, we don't need the fossil fuel power plants. You know, Pavley Clean Cars, which has really sort of been a national innovator in terms of getting clean cars on the market, you know, that is, is carrying so much of the reductions. Our initiatives around electric vehicles that, you know, benefit all of us and certainly, you know, through improved air quality benefit environmental justice communities, those are the things that are getting our reductions. Now, with regard to cap and trade, we oppose this particular deal that the governor um, and uh, legislature passed recently because it really doesn't get to the environmental, it doesn't get us to where we need to go in terms of the environmental integrity. Um, there are, as David said, there are definitely some complicated components to it. There's allowances in terms of who gets how many sort of trading chits, right? So if you're at sort of a casino in, in, in Vegas, this is the number of chips that you get for free versus what you have to have to pay for. There's, a, there's gonna be a great deal more of those free allowances that are handed off 
to the oil industry. And we just didn't think that that kind of a giveaway was worthwhile. Um, there were some good components to it as well. Um, there's a compendium bill which really updates California's clean air laws, which hasn't been updated in decades. So we, we think that the environmental integrity of the, of the bill as it was written and it, and it is being promulgated may not actually allow us to reach our reductions for the part, that little tiny part, that 20% that cap and trade does. Um, and for the optics nationally, it's an important thing. This deal in Oklahoma, let's crack open the champagne. This is a good deal in Oklahoma. But in a place like California, where we innovate the, the way that we do, we lead the nation by 10, 20 years, this is not something to be incredibly proud of and continues to leave environmental justice communities that APEN members come from in the Bay Area, my organization, um, behind because it's, 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 it's allowing refineries and power plants to continue to pollute and not just emit atmospheric pollution, but emit local pollution that enters into bodies um, and causes respiratory as well as other sort of public health issues. So you think the people who've been uh, left behind and suffered the, 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 uh, the pollution of, of the brown economy are going to be left behind in the green economy. Is that a concern? Well, that divide is real, right? I mean, we have, you know, the, EV, the electric vehicle standard or um, ob objective that California has passed, you know, definitely is getting electric vehicles out there. But, you know, there's, there's a needed push to be able to get those vehicles, whether they're, they're sort of first generation or in the used car market, into the hands and homes of low-income folks. Um, that, that, that isn't happening. There's a, there's, a, there is a, there's a potential for a green divide in this state. And we don't need to do that. We can do better. When we uplift all Californians, middle-income, low-income, then we uplift everybody. And someone who can afford a Tesla for six digits probably doesn't need that subsidy. <laughs> but someone who pays two times as much as I do for my energy bill, they need support. They need an uplift. They need a hand up and to become a part of this, this green economy. David Baker, uh, a lot of the national environmental regulations, car pollution, tailpipe standards, start in California. Tell us why people around the country should care about what's happening in California on this climate law, and in general, California's climate plan. We're the most populous state, biggest economy, so what? Well, a couple of reasons. One, um, yes, we are a very big economy and a very big state in terms of population. But two, we have now set ourselves up, or at least the state government has under Governor Brown, as being sort of the, the champions of climate action at the government level under the Trump administration. Um, with Trump, you have essentially the federal government backpedaling as much as they can or just trying to put things in, into a deep freeze in terms of taking further national action on climate. Jerry Brown loves this role. He cherishes this role of being able to get up in front of a microphone, take a few punches at Trump, and say, we are still going to push ahead, and anybody who wants to follow, please do. And he trots this. off to China, and he's like the yes. president of climate. He has yeah. essentially turned himself into the <laughs> ambassador of climate. Um, even though there are plenty of uh, environmental folks here in the state who have had issues with some of his policies. But the point being, he has actually sort of assumed this, this mantle of, of 
of leadership of saying, we've got a model in California, maybe it's not the best, but we've got it, it's up and running, all of you can come and join us, please do. And so he's constantly trying to get other people to adopt our policies and join in our programs. With the cap and trade market that we've been talking about, the province of Quebec in Canada has been participating in our market uh, for over a year. Uh, the province of Ontario just started its own cap and trade system and currently plans to join with ours. Their prices are almost exactly the same. So he is, he seems to be having a bit of an effect. Um, and at the moment, he's sort of the main game in town nationwide. I don't see anybody else who's done quite as much to basically say, no, we're not going backwards. So all the Californians who leave and go to Canada, or they'll, they'll be familiar with their cap-and-trade scheme. All the people who just, you'll be familiar with your price of electricity up there. We, we spoke with uh, Catherine Rehouse Boyd, who's president of the Western States Petroleum Association, and she says it's going to take more than California to combat climate disruption. It really depends on the approach. And as long as we look at these types of policies in a cost-effective way, that's going to be the highest chance of success. Because even though California is taking this leadership role, it really does matter if others follow, because California is only less than 1% of climate change emissions in the world. So if we did everything, it would not impact um, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. It has to be a collective unified approach. What do you think of those concerns about the environmental justice um, criticisms of this this deal that Governor Brown, California Governor Jerry Brown advanced recently? Well, first, I would say that both of the issues are meritorious. The reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in a global sense, but also how do we deal with local community concerns that are located around facilities, ours or any other manufacturing facility. Both of those are, are meritorious concerns. What we have said is that you should not try to handle both of those in the same policy because they're very, very different. You, you, wouldn't, ha you wouldn't handle a global pollutant like CO2, which is what we breathe in and out, the same way you would handle a local concern on, say, smog or ozone or particulate matter. One is health-based and one is, is, you know, has effects on climate temperature, which then impacts other things. So that's why I think it was a it was a very good package that came together. Catherine Reheis Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association. Uh, David Baker, the industry has been trying nationally has been trying to slow down climate progress for some time. Is there a difference between the Western oil companies, oil companies in the West and the national uh, posture? Well, they have to live here. <laughs> um, they have operations here. They have refineries here. They have oil fields here. I mean, it, that's a big thing. I mean, they, they simply have to be able to find some way to make their, their operations work with, with the state regulations. Um, American oil companies in general are still trying to draw out international action on climate change, very much contrary to the way the European oil companies have decided to approach it. The European uh, oil companies a couple years ago came together and issued a joint statement saying, this is a serious problem. We are going to help address it. We need a global price on carbon. We don't care how it comes about. We don't care if it's a tax. We don't care if it's cap and trade. We need that price. We need it to be pretty much as widespread as possible. We will then base our investment decisions on it, and you will see some progress. 
And the American oil companies wanted nothing to do with that. They basically said, nope, this will lead to higher prices for our customers. We want no part of it. So there's a divide within the industry if you're talking about American versus international right now. Mike Milkey, Silicon Valley companies uh, support lots of green efforts, doing lots of green things that we'll talk about in a minute. But they, when they go to Washington, they don't lobby on climate. The rap against Silicon Valley and a lot of companies is they do lots of things to say we're green for our employees and our products. But when it comes down to the political trenches, the inside game where they spend money in Washington, climate doesn't register. Why? Well, I think there's a couple things here. So one is uh, when you have uh, groups like BICEP, uh, which was started by Ceres, which is an investor uh, network, um, that make clear statements about uh, a price on carbon and the need for that and federal action and supporting the clean power plan and supporting staying in Paris. Um, this is Nike and Levi's and brand companies. But saying, it's, right. it's eBay, it's mm-hmm. Facebook, it's other, it's tech companies too. And so they've been very clear about that, right? Um, but yes, I think there is a real criticism there in terms of the, the, the backroom discussions, the hard trench warfare. Um, and I think a lot of that's because it is a, an incredibly hot political potato in Washington, D.C. I mean, you have outright um, denial. Um, from folks. So there's a whole bunch of concerns they have before Congress, right? And, and when you talk, we talk about the top list of issues, it's not there. And I think one of, the, one of the reasons is because a lot of these tech companies are, A, doing stuff in terms of their operations, going to 100% uh, renewable for their, for their data centers. I mean, Apple and, and uh, Facebook and others. Um, but also, they don't um, face the pressure in terms of their supply chain. They're not a, they're not a Nestle or you know, someone big in, in ag that has that incredible vulnerability from climate disruption, right, that affects all the sorts of products that we rely on as consumers, right? So I think that's a, that's a real issue for them as well. They don't, they don't face that pressure that other companies do. Well, tell us what CleanSep companies are doing in terms of their data centers, because uh, they don't have a supply chain, but a lot of electricity goes into data centers. And every time we you know, click like on Facebook or send an email, there's some coal burned somewhere. Uh, what have they done to, to clean that up? Yeah, so the data centers, just for everybody, um, these, these are the, the engines of the cloud. We always, well, let's talk about the cloud and how um, everything now is on mobile, right? You can order whatever you want on Amazon on your on your phone if, if you'd like. You can do uh, access Facebook and do all these things. And that's all powered by these data centers, which are the engines of, of the cloud and of mobile applications. And uh, they take a lot of energy, um, and they require a lot of cooling um, so that they can uh, function effectively. And that requires a lot of electricity. And so what these companies have done, a lot of these large tech companies have said, um, we're going to go ahead and we're going to advance um, our own, you know, in terms of dealing with our own operations, green um, electricity. So they've made huge investments in clean, uh, clean electricity. So Apple and, as I said, Facebook, Google, and others. Um, and more than that, they've also banded together um, as part of this effort called the Renewable Energy Buyers Association. So they've gone and they fought uh, at the local level in states across the country for getting renewable power on the grid, right? And that was led uh, by a lot of tech companies. And so they've worked to get more uh, wind, more solar on the grid around, uh, around the country in order for their operations elsewhere to be more green. 
That's Mike Milkey of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. We're talking about how businesses are helping to push for renewable energy and a cleaner economy. This is Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking with David Baker of the San Francisco Chronicle, Mike Milkey of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and Perrin Shaw of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. Let's continue our discussion on California's climate crusade. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask uh, some brisk questions to our guests. Uh, uh, the true or false, starting with Mike Milkey, uh, true or false, some Silicon Valley companies are skilled at greenwashing. <laughs> true. That happens anywhere. Perrin Shaw, true or false, people who work at fossil fuel companies will rot in hell. <laughs> false. Also for Perrin Shaw, true or false, you can have empathy for rank-and-file workers at oil companies earning good salaries and providing fuel we need for our daily lives. I certainly can, and they need to help us transition to the renewable one. David Baker, true or false, Elon Musk and Donald Trump have a fair amount in common. Uh, false. I'm sorry. False. Um, Mike Milkey, uh, true or false, tech companies and oil companies had never been on the same side of a battle until the recent extension of the state's climate law. Yeah, so what, what, when Catherine just said what she said, I, I found myself agreeing with a lot of it, and that is a rare thing, yes. True or false, Perrin Shaw, cap and trade is sexy. Clean air is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to go to association. I'm going to mention uh, something, and you're just going to tell me unfiltered what first comes to your mind. Uh, David Baker, hydrogen-powered cars. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Milkey, Greenpeace. Good. They've been pressuring a lot of clean tech companies to clean up the cloud. Uh, Perrin Shaw, President Obama. Windsurfing. <laughs> I thought he... Um, Said first thing. Yeah, first thing. Yeah, that's what he's doing now. Uh, this is multiple choice for David Baker. What has a larger water or carbon footprint, gin or orange juice? Oh, it's brutal, man. Um, <laughs> I read on your Twitter feed that you're a gin snob. Yeah, so this, it, it may very it. well be gin, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just for you, um, your beverage information, uh, the water and footprint content uh, uh, of uh, beverages goes from good to bad. Gin, coffee, wine, OJ, and milk. So milk and OJ, really high. Now, this came from uh, Diageo, the makers of Tanqueray, by the way. So maybe there's... Okay. Uh, yeah, there we go. Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, <laughs> so according to the gin makers, gin's better than, than OJ. Are they sponsoring this show? No, they're not. Sponsor Let's give this round to them for getting through that lightning round. Um, Mike Milkey, uh, some Republican elders recently went to Washington, James Baker, George Schultz, Hank Paulson. These are some of the elders of the uh, kind of old guard statesmen. And they said, we need to have a revenue neutral carbon tax. What does Silicon Valley think of that? What are the prospects for that? Uh, I'll, I'll take those in reverse order. What are the prospects for that? Um, currently still dim. Uh, I will say thanks to the efforts of folks like Citizens Climate Lobby. 
there is a Climate Solutions Caucus, and that is growing. And that's, uh, the way that works is one Democrat and one Republican step into that caucus together. It's called Noah's Ark Caucus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, safety, there's safety in numbers and in doing it together, right? Jumping off the cliff together, Butch and Sundance. Um, uh, so, yeah, and what does Silicon Valley think about that? I, I mean, in general, we support you know, um, putting a price on carbon, right? It's the right thing to do for all sorts of reasons, right? And creates all sorts of opportunities, and we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Earlier, Prince Shaw said that most of the reductions that are happening are because of regulation. Silicon Valley is notoriously, famously libertarian, doesn't like government intervention. Uh, so do you prefer the market solution? Because carbon tax is still kind of that regulatory mandate kind of approach to things. Yeah, so, I mean, He's right, and everything up, to, up until now. But once we get out into the out years, once the low-hanging fruit has already been picked, it's going to be harder and harder to get those emission reductions. And that's where cap-and-trade is really going to come in uh, to, to affect more fully. So um, yes, currently, it's all these complementary measures that are, that are doing the heavy lifting. But in the future, it's going to change. Um, so you know, as I said, we support cap-and-trade because it's the most effective and efficient way to, to get there. Um, that doesn't mean that we would not consider something else in the future. So, Prince Shaw, I mean, cap and trade has taken root. Seems like it's 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 here to stay. Uh, a lot of environmentalists don't like it, don't 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 trust it because they think it's um, you know it's just an extension of Wall Street. Are you willing to you know? Are you trying to overthrow it or are you trying to 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 tame it? What's what's the approach? Mm -hmm. Well, carbon carbon pricing generally it has a role in 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 the toolbox, um, as as Mike said. I mean, there's. There's definitely a place for it. Um, it, it, it. I think it has a, a very limited role in, 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 in its value. Um, and in this last year, EJ organizations really did try to work with uh, leadership in, in Sacramento, here in California, to, to try to shape a cap and trade program that we could all get behind. Um, this iteration, like I said, doesn't get there. I think in terms of going forward, there is a role for carbon pricing. We think it's just better to have it be a straight tax. Um, it's cleaner. You have less folks. It, 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 one problem with it, I will say, with the tax is a lot of people at ARB will lose their jobs. And that's not a good thing. So um, but maybe they can transition to working on clean air. Right? Bureaucratic and, and momentum and inertia to continue the status quo in government. Uh, we're talking about clean energy and, and around the country at Climate One. Perrin Shah is with Asian Pacific Environmental Network. Mike Milkey with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. And David Baker with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we spoke with Lauren Kay, who works with a group affiliated with the California Chamber of Commerce, and he says that fighting climate has a big cost. We have always been supportive of cap and trade. There's no doubt about it that climate change regulation in California is going to be expensive, but the cap and trade program will make it less expensive than it might have been otherwise with just a command and control approach. Every sector of the economy is going to be affected. Obviously, the energy industry is going to have the most direct effects. The tourism industry will be affected in California. There's nobody who is out of reach of the climate change regulations in California. It's going to add costs to energy, and it's going to add costs to goods and services in California. It's going to make us slightly less competitive than we would otherwise be. The great hope, of course, for this, and the most important test of success, 
is whether other states and countries also adopt cap-and-trade measures. That was Lauren Kay with the California Foundation for Commerce and Education. So two things there, cost and expansion. First, Shaw, he's saying that cap-and-trade is going to have smaller increases for electricity bills. That's going to affect the people that you care about. Is that fair? It's a fair statement, but that's part of the answer. Um, so while cap-and-trade will have a smaller impact because its price will be lower right now, a ton of carbon in the state of California is selling for $14.75, $15 a ton. Um, the true cost of carbon on the economy, right, the social cost of carbon, mm. is anywhere from $35 to $50 a ton. So what we do need to be doing, and what EJ organizations like, like ours are concerned about, is bringing us up and, and not subsidizing the polluters with that sort of $35 $35 delta between 15 and 50 um, and, and bringing that cost up. Now, you can do different things with that revenue. In California, we've advanced that we, uh, and the notion that we make investments into frontline communities and communities that have been impacted by fossil fuel use. So folks are living next to refineries or power plants. You know, another piece of it is, is having a dividend and a dividend that is means-tested, so one that allows for low-income folks to be able to have access and sort of address that sort of change in price as we transition from what might be a cheaper, what might be considered a cheaper fuel into something else. I will tell you, though, that wind and solar, as Mike can probably speak to with some of the folks that he's working with, are parity with natural gas, and certainly with coal in terms of generation. So the, these... The, these notions of sort of apocalypse in terms of the price is, is, is the chamber doing what they do best? I mean, trying to sort of keep the status quo as opposed to innovate. We've had a century of oil, a century of oil. What we, what we can go to now and do it equitably is a century of renewable energy for all. And I think that that's... That, that can be designed. Public policy is not something that just sort of happens. Public policy is born of our intellect, is born of our collective wisdom. And I think we can design something, if we so chose, that was equitable, that kept business going, and was good for the planet. Triple bottom line. That's a pretty good deal. Mike Milkey, uh, a lot of concern about the, the really tremendous concentration of wealth in Silicon Valley across our society. We just heard Prinshaw talk about some people uh, being, being left behind. How much is the equity piece of this, the people who are frontline, fenceline communities, part of the conversations you have in Silicon Valley? More and more. It's a, it's a big part of it. And I think it's um, due to the hard work of Perrin and others. Uh, and a lot of folks in the legislature um, now are taking up this issue uh, with real force. I mean, as part of the package, as Prun had mentioned, that was just passed, I mean, there were three bills, right? Um, so we were talking about the cap-and-trade extension, but there was also a constitutional amendment put forward by the Republicans to, to look at cap-and-trade expenditures in the future. Uh, and then there was this, this local air quality bill. Um, and that's where Catherine and, 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 and I agree, right? Um, let's not use a mechanism, cap and trade, that's meant to deal with a global pollutant, to deal with local pollutants. Let's use existing laws. Let's enforce them better. Let's make sure that we're putting real teeth into that. Uh, and that was part of the package. That was cer certainly not something that the oil companies 
uh, we're wild about, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and yes, I mean, there is this question now, I think a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are wrestling with, which is equity writ large. And what do we do about folks as either they're left behind or as um, the transition um, takes time to sort of take root and for people to go from you know, one sector of the economy to the other and learn new skills. It's, it's not easy. It takes time. And we have to think uh, really hard about how to make that happen in a way that doesn't This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Today, we're talking about California's controversial climate change laws and what they could mean to the rest of the nation. Greg Dalton is speaking with Perrin Shaw of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, David Baker of the San Francisco Chronicle, and Mike Milkey of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Let's go to some questions from our audience. Hi, my name is Steve Hams from Citizens Climate Lobby. My question relates to the issue that was raised about why businesses don't make climate a priority in their lobbying efforts. And I wanted to mention that with the uh, Climate Leadership Council that was brought up before, that 11 major corporations became founding members uh, endorsing that carbon dividends plan that they put out, including four oil companies. Do you feel that that is a watershed moment for companies uh, speaking out uh, on specific climate policy? David Baker? Sure, I'll, I'll give you my take on it. I, I wouldn't say a watershed moment, and I would, I would hesitate on that simply because I think we've seen some up and down cycles in terms of industry's willingness to go to bat on climate, uh, climate issues. There was a big push, oh, good Lord, that probably would have been 05, 06, somewhere in that ballpark, by a number of major U.S. corporations, including PG&E here in town, um, where they very much came out in public and started demanding some kind of action on this. That went on for a few years, faded out into the background. That was Caterpillar, John Deere, some real heartland yeah. companies yeah. said, we got to solve this. Yeah. So we've already gone through a couple of up and down cycles. So I, I'm very hesitant to say that anything recently is a watershed. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name's Karen Hoffman. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Puerto Rico. My question's for Mike Milkey. Um, you mentioned that you believe that cap-and-trade is the most effective way to get to where we need to be in terms of carbon reduction, and I'm supposing that you mean as opposed to a tax uh, and a, as opposed to regulation. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how and why you came to that belief that cap-and-trade is most effective. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly you, you put two other alternatives forward. So one is uh, direct regulation, and, and that's where we differ with, our, with our, our friends in the environmental justice community, the EJ community. Um, I, th I think an important part of all of this <clears throat> is A, maintaining public support, and B, building public support. And uh, let's face it, uh, we've tackled a lot of low-hanging fruit here in California, um, and we've made lots of great progress. Um, but in the, in the future, as I, as I noted, it's going to get harder and harder. And uh, it's going to be incumbent upon us to figure out and have this conversation as a society. What's the best way to do this? Uh, in the least disruptive way, as quickly as we need to do to make sure that we're not leading down a path in the future that we want none of our children, no matter where we live, to face. Um, and so compared to direct regulation, it was, it was no contest. 
um, attacks. I mean, <clears throat> I think the issues there are, are are manifold. I mean, one of them with with the the bill that was mentioned previously, the the alternative bill in in the Senate was that it was going to institute a border adjustment tax. And there's all sorts of, that's a big bureaucracy. There's all sorts of fraught legal questions with that. Um, you know, how do you institute that here in California? How do you put that forward? Um, and that was a big, big concern of ours, frankly. Um, another one was the market disruption. We've had this system up and running now for five years. It is widely recognized as the best in the world. And that includes the EU, right? Uh, and so we didn't want to put in jeopardy what we were already doing with something, as Perrin himself noted, that was too much, too fast, too uncertain. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Gary Dieter, and uh, I have a general question about the comparability of the cost to generate electricity. Uh, you do read quite often, and I think Perrin even mentioned in some of his comments that the cost of renewable energy is comparable to fossil fuel energy. When you consider the intermittent nature of um, renewables, um, you know, how do you really make that comparable and is the cost really on par because it takes a little more maybe than just an intermittent generation source? I have solar panels on my house, so I know it doesn't work at night. Do you have storage at your house too? No, I do not. Okay. There it is. Yeah. So you're saying don't just focus on the renewables, focus also on either a um, the energy efficiency because, I mean, it's it's all part of... Uh, the pie, right? So one is we want to reduce the size of the pie, right, to make it easier to get to, to more, uh, you know, renewable energy. And so that's energy efficiency. And that has a great payback. Um, it's it's a, a sort of a no-brainer in terms of investment. Then there are the renewables that we're talking about. And we're, when we refer to that, we're talking about new generation. So yes, um, I think almost universally, no matter what country you look at right now, um, renewables are beating uh, fossil fuels, Right. Uh, in terms of new power generation, new facilities. Um, but storage is a, is a big and important thing, right? Because we do have to figure out what to do when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, right? And so it's a very real um, issue that we have going forward. And it's, it's part of the equation. So I think if you actually look at the energy efficiency piece of it and sort of the, the cost decreases there, I think you can still make that claim that it's, it's on par if you look at it holistically. Shaw. I just add two things. One, a little over 100 years ago, we gave, and we continue to give from the federal government subsidies to fossil fuel companies. They're on into perpetuity. We have not stopped those, those giveaways, those subsidies for that industry to exist. One, first, in the beginning, to sort of come up and, and mature, but now they're just getting that. Every 10 years or so, the renewable industry has to go and sort of beg and borrow to try to get the tax credits. That well, it's more get. often than that, unfortunately. <laughs> well, right. So every 10 years, we're kind of like trying to piece this thing together, you know, while the fossil fuel industry has sort of gotten a set of subsidies into perpetuity. Like, that is impacting our ability to sort of advance newer technology. We've got to really get at that head on. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Hi, my name is Julia Farber, and I'm a sustainability consultant at Qantas International. I was hoping to chat a little bit about the way that we talk about climate change, because it's incredibly inaccessible to most people. So I was wondering if you guys could share some of the best ways that you have heard that um, has made the climate challenge real, because we do know that people care about their jobs, their family, and their health, and there's plenty to unpack there in this issue. So 
love to hear from all of you on what you would recommend and when you think the industry that we're in might transition to make this more accessible to others. I'll take a first crack at that. There's a fabulous book called Don't Even Think About It by George Marshall, who's a British author. He cites some other research in there that says it needs to be pain. There's an acronym pain. Things need to be personal. They need to be abrupt. They need to be immoral. And they need to be now. So if you think about climate, it's not personal, it's not abrupt, it's slow moving. Uh, you can get to the morality issue that we've touched on here, uh, and, it's, and it's not now. You know, one of the concerns is climate doesn't have a human face. Think about how much we react to one act of terrorism you know, and a, a, one, a handful of deaths, terrible, and yet climate change looks what's happening. We don't have the same reaction. Who else would like to tackle that? David Baker. This is just sort of my personal opinion from watching this over the years. Um, I have no idea what my, my paper's position on this would be, but I would say that the only thing that might work better than what has happened up until now is if someone were truly able to make it a crusade. The problem is there are a whole number of reasons why it's difficult to get everybody on board with that particular crusade. Obama was in many ways hamstrung in talking about this in public because he had a very coherent energy policy, but every bit of it pissed off someone. And if he said it all at the same time, he would lose some people. So he was very much in favor of renewable energy. He also liked having much more natural gas coming from fracking. He didn't even like to say the word fracking in public because he knew that a big bit, a chunk of his base hated it. But that was actually a key part of his policy. So how do you communicate it? How do you do a better job of getting people on board? It, I think, will take some kind of, some kind of leadership role. I don't know if it's a, a government leader or somebody else to actually make it some kind of crusade that people feel they can personally buy into. But it is exceedingly difficult to do that. There's another piece to this, which is we're all culpable. And I think that our complicity in this makes it difficult for us to hold and to, to know what to do with it. Because unlike uh, you could look at slavery and say, I didn't own a slave, or, so I wasn't, wasn't part of that system, or I wasn't part of apartheid. I could oppose apartheid. Uh, I didn't stop women from voting. We're all culpable in this, in this fossil fuel economy. And I think that causes some degree of, of conflict, guilt, et cetera. So I'm going to close with how you each of you wrestle with that and what gives you hope. So Mike Milkey, do you ever feel guilty for your lifestyle? Um, I, I feel, yeah, I, I do. I wrestle with guilt, uh, and I feel incredibly fortunate. And back when I was in Washington, D.C., I did a lot of international development work. So I worked in places like Afghanistan, Thailand, Indonesia, uh, Grenada after Hurricane Ivan doing relief work. And the, the main reason I wanted to do that, I mean, I'd always been focused on the environment, was to understand the concerns of others who are less fortunate than I am. So that's uh, always at the top of my mind. Um, do I feel guilty for taking cross-country trips, for example? I mean, that's a huge uh, part of my carbon footprint, as it is for everyone who does uh, travel. Um, yes, it's something that I wrestle with. What gives me hope? Uh, my son, um, I talk to him about it a lot. He has ingrained it. He understands climate change as well as I think any seven-year-old could. Uh, he's already starting to talk to his peers about this. Um, and I think uh, when you know, it comes to the point with the pain acronym, when our backs are against the wall, we can get big things done. It's going to take, it's going to take getting to the pain threshold, though, I think, unfortunately. David Baker, guilt and hope. I tend to think that guilt, particularly in situations like this, is a bad 
route and a bad thing to let yourself fall into. I mean, there are plenty of actions that all of us can take, little tiny actions day to day that can help. Take those. Um, take all the ones that you can incorporate it into your lives. But many of the things that need to get done will only get done at the societal level. So push for that. Vote for people who will push for that. Talk about it, as we've been discussing here. Talk about it with other people. Try to get people lined up. That, I think, is a much better thing than wallowing in guilt. And you know, we were talking about how to communicate with, with people. Conveying a message that you should feel guilty about what you're doing, shame on you, that is very rarely a good way to get people to, to change their behavior. I, I, I think Not that long-term. Sure, yeah, might have short-term, but shame and blame doesn't work long-term. Exactly. In, in terms of hope, I have quite a lot of hope. I am quite worried, quite scared by all this, but I have quite a lot of hope just because we have made an enormous amount of progress just in the last 10 years and just in this state, not even looking at the rest of the world. We've actually made a lot of progress here in terms of getting solutions out there that are going to help and more importantly, getting the, the prices of those solutions to drop. And that is really what's going to make long-term change in things. We're certainly not the only people here. California is not doing this by itself. But we have done this. Other places have done this. No, it is nowhere near enough. But there has been progress made. It is not a hopeless situation. So, yeah, I do have a lot of hope. Prinshaw, let me just twist this a little bit. You deal with people who have, are vulnerable, don't have the resources to, adapt, to deal with this. Is there resentment toward people who have higher carbon footprints and privilege? And also, what gives you hope? Um, so, is there resentment? No. You know, the members that we have at, at our organization <clears throat> live next to a refinery here in, in Richmond, California. And for 20, 25 years, they've been working on these solutions, and there is not, uh, there's, I, I have not met a member, you know, we've prim that community's primary, uh, Laotian immigrants, um, have not met a member that, you know, certainly doesn't get upset, but always will be ready to sort of talk with others about the impact that fossil fuels have on their life and work with, work, work with folks, whether it be a legislature or somebody on the street, legislator or someone on the street, to sort of look at what kind of solution we can find together. So that is actually my hope story, is that you know, folks that have been so directly impacted in the front lines of this stuff are still out there sort of advocating decades later, saying we can, we can find a solution together if we act collectively. You've been listening to California's Climate Crusade, a Climate One program hosted by Greg Dalton. Greg's guests today were David Baker, a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle, Mike Milkey, Senior Vice President of Environment and Energy with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and Perrin Shaw, Senior Strategist for the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Bye.
Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.